Welcome to Crosspoint. If I haven't introduced myself, my name's Bruce, and we are, for the second time in three years, and the only time I've done this, the 12 years I've been pastor here, we're revisiting a biblical series. Different passages of Scripture, they're not difficult to find to explain the concepts that we're looking at from Scripture because they're, they're all through it once your eyes are sharp to see it. We call this series Table Talk, and that's a very simple biblical picture of God's family existing where a lot of different people are in the family. Some of them have just been born into God's family. The phrase born again is almost a, a, a socio-political insult these days. It shouldn't be. Those, that phrase originated with Jesus. He told a very religious man something that brought him up short. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Every human being born alive in this earth is also born at that same moment spiritually dead. In other words, insensitive to God, ignorant, turned away spiritually from God, in love more with doing what he wants or she wants rather than what God wants. And Jesus says every human being to be in the family of God must be born again spiritually. Those people who move from what we called the dead cheer are born into the family of God, and when people are born into a family, we call them infants, babies, right? Little tiny ones. That was the chair we looked at last week, and as part of that, we memorized a verse of the Bible together. I just want to check your memory and reaffirm it. If you weren't here last weekend, that's perfectly fine. You can learn this passage of Scripture with us. It's found in Peter's first letter. And he wrote this. Read it with me. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. I've had a lot of people tell me I can't do memory. Yeah, you can. There's two simple things that'll help. Repetition and imagining. Okay? So, if you repeat this often enough, I guarantee you if you say this to yourself 50 times over the next two days, you'll have it for a long time. Then occasionally you can go back and review it, and it'll be yours for life. You can also imagine in your mind's eye what the Scripture is saying. In this case, I envision a baby hungrily feeding, and then that baby growing up like a magic moment in the movies through that special effect where they take that little baby, and in three seconds he learns to stand up, he's a little boy, and suddenly he's a full-grown man. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the Word for this reason, so that you may grow up into your salvation. Let's say it a couple more times. I bet you'll get it. Let's read together. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. Once more, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. Scouts honor, look down. See if you can say it without looking at the screen. It says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow up into your salvation. Now, let's be accountable. Turn to your neighbor and say the verse to each other. Did you get it? Hey, not the Dodgers, not the Angels. This is not that time. How'd you do on the Bible verse? 
You got it, right? Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the Word for what reason? So that you may grow up into your salvation. That, we said last week, is one of the markers and one of the paths for growing. In the beginning, in God's family, all you know is that Jesus saved you. You don't know much more than that, but as other people teach you, and especially as you read Scripture for yourself, hear your Father explain Himself to you, tell you His plans, His purposes, His character for your life, it helps you, it makes you grow up into your salvation. You never grow past the Scriptures. Today, we're going to talk about the next chair. We're going to talk about spiritual children. What is true about baby Christians? What is true about Christians as they become, as they sit in that child chair? What are Christians in the child chair like? Every one of these seats in the family of God, every one of them brings joy. They do it for different reasons, but just like raising your children, each season has its own moment of joy where they're two years old and you love them dearly and you can't wait for them to get just a little bit older. You know what I mean? And, you know, people say the twos get a bad reputation. They talk about the terrible twos. In my opinion, threes are tougher because a three-year-old is a two-year-old with one year of experience. Uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot tougher. What is that season like? Well, it brings joy. Listen to the aged Apostle John write to a dear friend of his in his final letter in 3 John. He wrote, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Listen to the parental joy in this third verse. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what every parent wants. No one has ever welcomed a baby into their family at the hospital. They've never cradled that baby and wished for them a disappointing, sad, broken life. We all have high hopes and joys. We want them to live according to truth, not according to lies. We don't want them suffering and deception. John said, my greatest joy is this, when I hear across the miles of all these times of separation, because remember, this is the first century. They're not Facebook messaging each other. John, John goes likely for very long periods of time knowing that people are in the world that he introduced to Jesus. He gave his testimony. He told the stories of the miracles. They came to believe in Christ, but John hasn't heard from them in years. And he says this, bursting with the pride of a father, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So everything else I'm going to tell you from Scripture that is true about the child chair, if you are a, not a baby Christian anymore, but a child Christian, what I'm going to tell you next isn't pleasant, it's true, but it's all shot through and dominated by the joy that you're in the family of God. And it's in those things where you have yet to mature, that's exactly where God and His local church and this pastor, your friend and fellow brother, want to meet you to show you from Scripture and in loving relationships with other Christians how you grow from the child cheer and become spiritually mature. The dominant trait of children is this. They are self-centered. That's it. Thankfully, I've been able to travel a little bit. I was raised outside of the United States and traveled various places. I've 
super curious when I go into another culture. I've never had a different answer to this question. Anyone I ask, what are children's first words the world over, missionaries from all, the world, all around the world in their own language will tell me that the first words any child speaks, well, let's give it a try. What do children in America normally say first? Mine. And? No. Between services, someone came to me. She brought her grandson, and she said, I just lived your sermon. She got here to the Sunday school class with her two-year-old grandson. He looked at the church and said, oh, Sunday school, no hitting. <laughs> I wonder where he heard that. And then he went in, and he wanted the Play-Doh, but the Play-Doh was already in use, so he was invited to use this other Play-Doh, and he said, no, and great drama and heartbreak, right, and rending of garments and sackcloth and ashes and ceremonial mourning were all had in the two-year-old class, even as he prepped himself mentally for the moment and said, Sunday school, no hitting. Two minutes later, he was down in the dumps because that's what you're like when you're a kid. The process of parenting is the loving exhausting, exhilarating process of teaching your children to not be self-centered. You ask the craziest questions as parents, don't you? A lot of rhetorical stuff. Why did you do that? I'm reminded of a cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin has driven about 50 nails into a piece of furniture, and he's standing there with a hammer, and his mom says, why did you do that? And he looks at her and says, is this a trick question? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, right? we ask these kinds of things. How would you feel if he did that? Right? What, we're, what does that question that's repeated a hundred different ways, what are you trying to create in the mind of a child? Empathy. You're trying to get him to see the world from the other person's point of view. That's a good thing. Parents instinctively do that. We lovingly do that because actually Jesus says that's the sum of the law. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor like yourself. See, Jesus takes for granted that you're going to love yourself. That's a constant. You're always looking out for you. You can't help it. God made you that way to be concerned about yourself. And the process of spiritual maturity is for you looking beyond concern only for yourself to loving God supremely and loving other people the same way you love yourself. I see this in a couple different places in Scripture, particularly 1 Corinthians 1 and Hebrews 5. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul wrote the Corinthian church, one of the first Christian churches. It would have been very difficult to be the pastor at the church at Corinth. To be one of the spiritual leaders of this church would have been a hot mess. They were suing each other. There was terrible sexual immorality in the church, and not only that, they were apparently not only condoning it, but celebrating it as an expression of their freedom in Christ. Just a really difficult place. And in the first chapter, Paul gets right to business telling them that they're behaving like children. And please distinguish this. The Bible always praises a childlike faith. Jesus says, in fact, unless you become like a little child, you'll never see the kingdom. Why? Because children in their childlike trust trust their father. 
I miss in this season of my boy's life, as they're nearly full-grown men now, I miss the season when they trusted me absolutely. They'd be playing with something, break it down to a molecular level, bring me the powder and say, here, fix this. And it was so sweet that they thought I could. Now they don't ask for those things anymore. They're very well aware of my limitations. They're not even bothering, right? Don't tell dad. He can't do anything about it. Okay. That's childlike faith. That's good. Childish behavior, self-centered behavior, undiscerning behavior, that's bad. Listen. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Here's how he knows. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollo, so you're not being merely human. Sometimes people idealize the first Christian churches. They were as normal and human and messed up at times as this one as any other. What was happening here? Who are these people? Paul is the famous apostle who's writing this letter. Apollos is another man known to us only in the book of Acts. Very little in Scripture that tells us about him, primarily Acts, but he's a powerful preacher of the Word of God. This church has had the blessing of knowing both of them, and they've basically picked their favorite. And they're at war with each other. There's jealousy and strife because apparently they decided if you really like this kind of pastor or preacher better, that meant you were more spiritual. I've seen people look down on other Christians over all kinds of things, including Bible translation, all manner of things. When I was a young seminarian, I nearly fell over one day because I was walking toward this building. And somebody pulled up, an older church member, could have been my dad, I suppose, back then, about my age now. He pulls up. Our pastor at the time had a very distinctive car, and he always parked it in the same place. He wasn't there that Sunday, and this man noticed that the car is not there. So he pulls around, pulls up next to me, and says, hey, pastor gone? Yes, sir. Who's preaching today? And I told him, and he said, all right, and he drove off, never came back. That's childish behavior. Nothing wrong with the guy preaching. He wasn't the main guy, but the point of a worship service is to come before God, worship Him, and hear His Word. If you go home and watch the game instead, it's childish. That's what's happening in Corinth. They're self-centered. Hebrews says that another characteristic of people in this child stage is they are undiscerning. They can't yet tell the difference between what is good for them and bad for them, and that is also true in human development. A little kid will put anything in their mouth. They're to eat the good milk of the Word, the substantial meat of the Word, the more substantial things of God. You're supposed to have this complete, pure, true, nutritious spiritual diet, but there's all kinds of spiritual food being peddled in the world. You can turn on the TV and hear about 12 heresies in 15 minutes. You can go to Barnes & Noble and walk the spirituality aisle and see all kinds of things about Jesus, a few of them true, many of them straight garbage, things that will be toxic to your soul. And when you're in the kid's chair, you can't always tell the difference. That's the frustration of Hebrews 5. 
He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's big. Don't run past that. In Hebrews 5, the author is explaining something wonderful about Jesus. Jesus is the central theme of Hebrews. He's explaining to persecuted Jews in the first century, some who were following Jesus, some who have heard about Him and are beginning to love Him but are undecided, listen, if you miss Jesus, you've missed the one. Don't go back. Don't go don't go in a different direction. Don't take on your old rituals. If you miss Jesus, no one else is coming. He is the Savior that we've been expecting. And he's telling them about Jesus, and he says, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. Another translation says you've become too lazy to understand. And that's just like kids. Have you ever had the parental experience of trying to explain something really, even if you're not a parent, trying to explain something really important to a kid and you notice he's looking over your shoulder and rolling his eyes and signaling at his friends? And you go, listen, this matters. Are you listening? Have you had this conversation? Are you listening? Yes. No, you're not. Are you listening now? No, you're not. They're dull to hear. They're not interested. They're bored by it. He expects that they should have been making spiritual progress. Look, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracle is a word that is seldom used in everyday English. It just means the revelation of God. He is saying something massive, something that brings me up short when I consider it. God in His love made the world and everything in it, including me. And because He wanted me to know Him, He put it in writing. And over 1,400 years, about 40 different authors in three different languages, many of them, of course, and most of them never having met and could not collaborate, they told His story. They told me exactly who He is. Having done that, He sent His Son God win the flesh so that I would know exactly who God is, what He wants, how to be saved, how to have the fulfilling life that God created every human being to enjoy. He put it all in writing, and at the critical moment when God reveals Himself, if I'm honest too many times, I, a pastor, look at this Bible and find myself unwilling to open it again. You ever had this experience? It's just, it feels tedious sometimes. If I'm blowing it, and I'm feeling in that moment the shame and guilt of what I've done wrong, the last thing I want to do is open God's Word and be confronted by it. And in that moment, I'm having the experience of these Hebrews with all the spiritual maturity that God, by His grace, has brought me into. At that moment, I'm trying to get out of the big boy chair and get back into the kid chair. What this passage tells me is that a sure way to know the maturity in God's family is your response to His Word. If you're dull to listen, if you should by now be teaching someone else, but you're not really interested, you're still in the kid chair. He says you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature 
Here's another sign of moving out of the child stage in the family of God. The mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You can hear bad spiritual teaching, you can hear bad advice, and you've heard enough from God to know that it's not true, that it's a 20% lie, and that that 20% will ruin everything for you. Children are, in the beginning, in spiritual and physical families, they're a cause for joy, but they're also self-centered and undiscerning. So how exactly do Christians grow? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll give you three simple truths from this passage. Paul is writing again to another one of these first Christian churches in the city of Ephesus, hence the name Ephesians. It's in modern-day Turkey. And he's telling them how God set the church up so that everyone in it will mature. I'll read from verse 11. Paul said, he gave, Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So you've got different categories of people who Jesus has given to the church. In Paul's day, apostles were functioning. These were people who had been with the Lord, had personally seen Him, were sort of an inner circle, if you will, who were going to be sent out to do work that would not be repeated in the world. Along with them were prophets, men who spoke powerfully the Word of God to other people. There were also evangelists who, even to this day, their primary function is to give people the good news of Jesus and tell them how to have their sins forgiven. Then finally, these two words, shepherds or pastors and teachers, probably refer to a single person, and that's what I'm trying to do for you this morning. I'm trying best I can for these minutes that you've given me, and I'm very grateful for, to function in a way that will shepherd your soul, in other words, guide you to good food, guide you to Jesus, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and to teach you the Word of God. All of those things, Paul says, were given to the church verse 12. We'll come back to this. Those people were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, don't miss verse 13 and 14. This is what Jesus wants. This is why He gave these people. This is why the church exists for everyone to arrive at the same spot. Verse 13. This is to happen, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. In other words, Christians are to stay in fellowship, congregations are to grow and serve together until everybody matures. To the measure, Paul says, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. That's where we all start. We're not supposed to stay there so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here's God's plan, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Now Paul changes his word image. Now he envisions the church as a body with Jesus as the head giving life and strength to all of the different parts of the church represented by individual Christians. 
verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what now? In love. So how do Christians grow? Paul would tell you first, we grow when we expect it. Paul said in verse 13, the church is functioning Saints are serving, pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, all of these different people. They all have different tasks and functions within that body, but they're all doing their part until we all grow up, until we all reach, as he says in verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We expect it. And that may seem like the simple, most obvious thing to you in the world, but it's not. It's crucial. Let me explain it to you as practically as I can. For whatever reason, the American church in particular has deformed itself contrary to what Paul explains here, and we've created a church culture and a pathway to spiritual growth that sort of looks like this. We have a handful of Somehow, people who somehow arrived in a position where they have been taught the Bible well, usually at colleges or seminaries, who have felt a call of God to serve with their whole lives, to serve vocationally, to be on a church staff somewhere maybe. And those hardworking few roll out a program and in some churches put on a show They invite everybody to come in, sit down, sing the songs, and listen, and then basically scatter until we do it all again next week. And in all of that, we hope that something sticks and somebody grows up. Let me just ask you. You step back and look at the whole picture. How's it going? Do you know a whole bunch of people who remind you very much of Jesus? If you're new to our church but you've been in others, even if you've been a long time of our church. Do you come here expecting to routinely meet people who remind you a great deal of Jesus? That's that's where we're going next. Paul says he's the standard. That's what we're aiming for. God has brought us into His family by the sacrifice of His one and only Son. He has adopted and brought by the new birth into the family many sons and daughters, and the model, the measure of everyone in the family is the fullness of Christ. But we don't expect it. God expects you to grow. The first time we taught this series, someone texted me as soon as the sermon was over or as soon as I got my phone back because I live in dread of getting a text message or a call if I'm up here. But I got my phone back, and it's already, there's already a text message waiting, and somebody wrote me, I just realized I've been in church 40 years, and I'm still a child. Now, that's humble, and that's where you start growing, but do you have any idea how common that is? Because we've just plainly ignored what Paul's saying here. What Paul expects, what God wants, what God is striving for is for all of his kids to grow up just like any family. Put it in the human realm. Put it in the physical realm. A young couple welcomes for the first time with great joy their first child into the world. They've done everything. They've read all the books. They bought the $300 car seat. They even went to the fire department to make sure it's properly installed. Right? The kid's got a hat and blankets so that the son will not burn his precious skin the first time he leaves Hogue Hospital. I mean, they've got it wired. 
They've got all the websites bookmarked. They've got it all. And three months later, that baby has not gained any weight. They're looking at benchmarks. And six months later, they're not doing anything that the book says they should expect. What's the sense? What's the emotion in that family? They're panicked. They're afraid. Something's wrong. We have a child, but they're not maturing. Doctor, what's wrong? If their first pediatrician blows them off, if they don't feel reassured, they don't feel they're getting good care, that guy's fired real quick. They'll go to somebody else. They want answers. They will spend a loving family, will spend any amount of time and any amount of money. They will bring all that modern medicine can to bring to bear if this child is not progressing normally. In the spiritual family, what we routinely see is people who have been in the family of God for decades, they still act like little kids, and everybody treats it as the most normal thing in the world. It's not. We have to expect from ourselves what God wants for us, and we make Jesus the standard. Notice in verse 13, He's the measure of maturity. He's the source of growth. He is the head of the body. Make no mistake, I'm the senior pastor of this local congregation, at least for a little while, but I have never been, never should be, and never could be its head. That's Jesus. He's the Savior. He runs the church, and He is the source of life, and He's also the standard by which we measure ourselves. If you make Jesus the character and the competence of Jesus your standard, you'll be humbled and encouraged for life. Humbled because on your best day, you haven't been exactly like Him. But encouraged because if you stick with it, if you continue to do what your Father says, your Father who brought you into the family, and make no mistake, your Heavenly Father knows how to help His kids grow up. If you'll participate with His plans, adopt His habits, take up His attitudes, you will grow. And on any given Tuesday, you may look like the most childish or wicked person in the world, but viewed over a long period of time, what you will see is genuine spiritual progress. And that's what we want. We want to make Jesus our standard. And the way that happens is back up in verse 12. We work together toward it. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers... And all of those people, all of those people who were ministering in public, who may even be in the limelight, they're all given for one single reason. Verse 12 says it, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the most important thing I have to share with you. Just speak of the last office, the last title, pastor's or shepherds and teachers. That's guys like me. Okay? This verse says that if you're a pastor or an evangelist, if you're one of these, Jesus gave you to the church not to make the church about you, but to specifically, well, you tell me. What does verse 12 say? A pastor was given to a church to do what? To equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. Let's define terms. Who in the world are the saints? Football team in New Orleans? Who is that? That's you. I say saints. Many people brought up, especially if they were brought up in Catholicism, see 
iconic imagery, halos and sacred art. Saint is a biblical term, it's a Greek word that simply means set apart. In other words, when you are born into God's family, He sets you apart as His own. That's one of the most thrilling parts of being in a healthy, loving family. Somebody's picking on you, your dad will step forward and put a stop to it because you belong to Him. You're part of that family. He's not indifferent towards you. Your mother and your father, they love you. Your brothers and sisters stick up for you. You're set apart. There are many families. Maybe they're even better than yours, but you're part of this family, and we stick together. We love each other. We face trouble together. When you come into God's family, He sets you apart eternally for Himself, and one day you will enjoy Him, and He will enjoy you forever. And what He wants you to do now is to make the gap between your earthly experience and your heavenly experience someday a whole lot smaller. He wants to grow you into the person you will eventually be completely in heaven. You are set apart for Him, and the saints are set apart and equipped by pastors to do what now? Verse 12, to do what now? No, go quiet on me now, folks. This is where the rubber meets the road. Let's go. (laughs) Pastors are given to the church to equip, to prepare, to furnish, to repair to get ready the saints, the people of God, all of their fellow Christians for what purpose? For the work of ministry, for acts of service. See, that's a game changer because what we've created in this clerical culture in the United States is a two-tier system of professional clergy who do the work of ministry while everybody else kind of shows up and watches pays for it, sings the songs, helps as needed. But there are only a few ministers. It's a subtle thing, but one of the worst things we probably ever did is allow pastors to be called ministers. Pastors, Bible teachers, shepherds, you bet. Those are biblical terms. Ministers, that's you. You're in God's family. Ephesians 2.10 says, when you were born into the family of God, you were created by God for the good works which your heavenly Father prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In other words, your everyday life is to be ministry, is to be service. Imagine the difference it would make. There's about 650, maybe 700 people that are connected to Crosspoint at one point or another people who are here every time the doors swing open and people who come occasionally, but there are some 700 of us maybe, maybe up to eight or 900 if you count every single person. Imagine if all of those people who were old enough physically grew to maturity in Christ and walked out into the world envisioning themselves every single day as people who were growing into the likeness of their older brother Jesus who saw themselves as his servants and followers in the world. What effect would that have on local high schools? If a high school sophomore walked in, heart pounding in her chest, saying, Jesus, here I am. I'm scared to death, but I'm I'm in your family. And you're going to put someone in my path who I will serve in your name, and I'll try to love them and listen to them and talk to them the same way you would. What might that do if there were four such kids at Ocean View High School? It changed things. 
It changed things at your office, at your factory, in your homes, at your hospitals, wherever God has given you to work, to live, to play, to enjoy your hobbies. If everybody saw themselves as a minister, if everyone grew to the point where they could minister, it would make all the difference in the world. Here's what we've misunderstood. Here's the truth. Pastors equip and people minister. We pastors, we're not aloof from it. The best analogy I have for you is we're player coaches. We're coaching, but we're not on the sideline. We're right there in the thick of it, but it'd be a terrible thing if the Patriots turned to Belichick and say, you run, you tackle, you throw, you catch. How many more Super Bowls are they going to win if they turn it over to the coaching staff? None. And here's the thing, we grow more by serving than by sitting. See, in physical families, everybody understands that. In the church world, we've got it twisted, and we make it much less clear for everybody. In the Christian world, and I've seen, had this conversation hundreds of times in several countries, hey, I would like to invite you to serve, to get involved, to help with, oh, I just feel like I don't know enough. And that's a, that's a showstopper, that's it. Right? I don't know enough, I can't help. Let's take that over into a physical family. What would happen if physical families said, you're a child, you're in our family, but you know, here in America, you're not really of legal age until 18. So what we're going to do until you're 18, we're going to do everything for you while you mature. And once you turn 18, then we're going to invite you into family life. What kind of chaos would that create? What do, real, what do healthy, normal, functioning families do? As soon as that child is able to help with anything, they teach him to help. Did you get your plate? Oh, no, I forgot my plate. And this goes on, at least in some homes, I'm told. I'm told, not mine. I'm told that still goes on a few years past two. When the child finally does something, the tiny little child does something like bring her own plate and fork back to the sink, what do moms and dads do? I celebrate, and the kid's like, it's the greatest day of my life. I'm going to bring the plate and the fork more often. And you celebrate every little act of service, every love, every kindness, when they take their favorite toy and look their kid brother in the eye and sigh heavily and hand it over, you say, that's great, buddy, good job. It's like, and what are you doing? You celebrate what you want more of. What's happening in the Christian church? We invite people to sit for years, do nothing, and hope they mature, and teach them that that's actually a good idea. Here's what we've misunderstood. We think that maturity is the prerequisite to ministry. It's not. Ministry is the pathway to mature. Not in every way, of course. You don't invite the eight-year-old to drive. But everyone in the family, as soon as they are conscious of love for God and love for others in God's family, can start serving others in some way. And then they discover the joy of it. They discover of living a life that is centered on others rather than on self. They hear the applause and the praise of God and their fellow Christians. They see the difference it makes in an unbelieving world, and they want much more of it. So what does this look like? There's a whole bunch of coaching and there's a whole bunch of correction. But listen, it's all motivated by a single thing. 
by love. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, cross point, we need every single one of you, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. It's love that's driving this whole thing. Please understand, I blow it all the time, but God is my witness, my prayer, my intent, my motive in all things, even when they're confrontational, even when you don't like them. It's my best understanding of what God wants, and it's motivated by His love and my love for you. That's what mature people do in the family. They're not on a power trip. They're not lording it over others. The 17-year-old sister who forbids the 9-year-old brother at going out at 11 o'clock at night, she doesn't hate him, she loves him. It's all through Scripture. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, there's the growth process. God loves you already. Start acting like your heavenly Father. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What am I trying to tell you? The way out of the child cheer is simply this. Christians grow up when they move from being consumers to contributors. If you're in the family of God, you were made to be interdependent in this family. You depend upon God for everything. You lean on your brothers and sisters in the faith who are more mature or perhaps just as mature but differently gifted because they have something that you need. That's why God put a body together. That's why every part matters. They're different than you. They've had different experiences. They've had different scars and stars. There are things that have wounded and hurt them that God has forgiven and redeemed and healed. There are stars in their lives, things that have gone well that they can offer you as a gift. We all need each other. And maturity really becomes real life when we move from only consuming to also contributing. That's the path we're on. Here's a simple invitation. We are, we've had it as a church, speaking for your leadership. We've had it with telling you that anything else but you growing to maturity in Jesus is normal, expected, and that that's what we want. We haven't had it with you. We love you. Because we love you, we want to help you walk with us, not behind us, not in support of us, to walk with us a path that God Himself will trace out so that we mature spiritually. It may be your first time here. You may have been here for years, but kind of sitting in the stands. Here's my simple invitation. If God will move in your heart in this service in such a way that you say, I get it. I don't even know what my next step is, but I get it. I want to grow up in Christ. If you'll take that connection card in your bulletin and write something on the back like, I want to grow, I want to get started, just make it simple so that we can understand what you're at. I and others will be in touch with you this week. There is a pathway. It has existed from the time of Jesus. Here's a big surprise. Jesus knew exactly how to grow disciples to be like He was. 
Where we've gone wrong is we've ignored His methods. What we're trying to do as Crosspoint is love Him and obey Him well enough that we imitate. We receive not only His message, we imitate His methods. That may mean in practical life that I personally walk a part of the journey with you or the whole journey with you, but in a church this size, it's no longer possible for any individual to walk it with everybody. It just can't happen. But there are people that God has gifted and grown up here, hundreds of you, who know enough about the Lord that you have grown to maturity. You don't image Him perfectly any more than the rest of us do, but you can help someone find the path and walk it with you. If you want to get started, you fill that card out, and I promise you, it won't be perfect. It'll be very human. It'll be as ordinary as your morning cup of coffee, but it will be real. It will be life-giving, and you can grow to maturity in Christ, but only if you want to. Only if you will humbly engage the process and say, I'm in. Let's get started. Let's pray together. Lord, that invitation is as clear as I can make it. I pray now that you would do what only you can do. I can make an appeal only you can persuade and bring people's hearts to humbly trust you. I pray that you would right now. That you would move in the hearts of men and women, people of all ages, and I pray that you would especially do that with young people in this church. Teens and people in their 20s who still have their entire life before them, who have all that health, energy, vision, that they could give it all to you for your glory and their good. I pray that many people would take me up on that invitation because it's from you. It's not my idea. You are making disciples, Jesus, and you're using other people to help others follow you even as we do. So as we give this offering and Christians consider their options and they stand at that crossroad of keeping the status quo or humbly saying, I want to go further, I pray that you'd move in many hearts and that you would put us all on a path at whatever stage we're in of growing closer to you and growing more like you. In Christ's name, amen.